Jeff Lagerman didn't need Jacksonville. Tom Coughlin, though, needed a pass rusher, and the free agent from New York was the best in class. He became the Jaguars' first marquee free agent and would go on to become one of the most popular players on the field. And for the last 25 years, in the city that has become his home. This is Perspectives. The story of the Jaguars' first 25 years as told by the people who built the franchise from the ground up. This is Jeff Lagerman. Long a businessman who happened to be a football player, Lagerman was well-versed in the business of the NFL. He knew well how a pair of expansion teams could expand the market for his services, and he considered both Carolina and Jacksonville. The businessman, though, was interested in having fun after six losing years in New York and let the football player make the decision. Tom is not casual. He's behind his desk. This is kind of formal. That's kind of how he likes to have it. And so shake hands, and I sit down at this small little chair, I think, that probably has the legs cut off just so he can look down on you a little bit. And uh, and we had, a, we had a heart-to-heart conversation. He asked me what I was looking for in free agency and and what I wanted to, to get in free agency. And, and I said, look, obviously – contractually you want to get taken care of financially I said that's obviously first and foremost and I said then after that I said then it's a matter of of one thing and I said that's winning and I looked at him and I wanted to have an answer about how soon could we win and and when I when I kind of took that approach with it he he was a little slow to react uh, but then he came back with a great answer he said look we have we're going to have some tools the multiple draft picks that we're going to have in each round. We're going to have a free agency. We already have the expansion draft. We're going to have the ability to get better quick. And he had to sell me on that because, you know, what? if somebody doesn't have a plan, look, it can be fun and, and you can have a lot of fun going on a new team because an expansion team, but at the end of the day, somebody's got to have a vision. And in that brief conversation that we had, I felt that he had vision. And uh, it's kind of – you got to have faith, right, in some things in your life. And and I had faith in that guy. I had faith in, in Tom Coughlin. And his eyes were described to me long before I ever met him and that his eyes were very piercing and can be very intimidating. And uh, to me, I, I thought they were very confident and also accomplished, and, and I had a lot of confidence in them. To those around the Jaguars since 1995, That inaugural season seemed like a blur then, and it's gotten foggier through the years, but not to Lagerman. See, you you have to focus on 95, though, because 96, 97, 98, 99 doesn't happen without 95. Because in 1995, without the precedent, and even though you have a brief history, but without the precedent that you establish with the toughness level and expectation level, then the ensuing years have no expectation. And I think the 1995 season was so important in so many different ways because it did it. It established the foundation in which this franchise was going to run on for the ensuing years. And so you had to make certain sacrifices in 95. For example, I'll never forget in practice during an OTA one day, you had a fight, and it was Thomas Linsky and Ferrick Collins. And and when Ferrick Cullen, he grabs Thomas Linsky's helmet and he throws it across the field because of kind of a sign of toughness or frustration or whatever it was. And Tom Coughlin walks over to Ferrick Collins 
tells him to go pick the helmet up, and Ferrick, he refuses. And he asked him again. He refused again. And so Tom just kind of let it pass. And then I'll never forget after practice, you know, the defensive line, Ferrick Collins, defensive lineman. We get together, do a little breakdown with John Pease, our defensive line coach. And then we start to walk off the field from south of the stadium, which is where the practice field used to be. And I'll never forget it. Ferrick Collins is walking in front of me, and I see Tom Coughlin walk up to him and, and literally start walking alongside him, reach down and grabs his helmet and says something to him. And that was it for Ferrick Collins. He was gone that day. But that's the sacrifice that you had to, to make of cutting what was going to be a really good football player. He might have been our best defensive tackle that we had on the roster in 1995, but it didn't matter. It was more important to establish that there's one boss with a football team, that's Tom Coughlin, and you either do it his way or you're not going to be here. And that was a lesson that everybody saw on that football team. And that so from 1996 and 97 and 98 and 99, people knew that you do not defy Tom Coughlin, otherwise it's going to cost you your job. And it's also going to cost you your teammate, your teammate's performance at the end of the day. And that's those are the things that had to be established in 1995, and they were certainly established in a very firm manner. 1996 started on the right foot, but never could find its balance. Mark Brunel's five-interception game in St. Louis was followed by Dave Thomas's gruesome leg injury in Cincinnati a few weeks later. And in mid-November, Andre Risen was dismissed after a horrendous game in Pittsburgh. It seemed as if there was nowhere to go but down. A lot of people point to a couple different things in 1996 as a turning point because there's a lot of things that happened in 1996 that a lot of people don't know about. I mean, first of all, people know about the donuts. What Tom was going to come in and hang out in the locker room and eat donuts with people, and, and then he wasn't going to be terrible Tom anymore, and he was going to start to build a nice relationship with the players, and then they would be all sing Kumbaya and win football games together. <laughs> That's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> A head coach coming in and having donuts. When he came in to eat donuts, guys scattered. It was it was like you turn the lights on and the roaches scatter because nobody nobody wanted to sit down and have a donut with Coughlin. There was very few that did. It was a couple of the veteran guys that actually sat there and did have a donut with Coughlin. And of course, one of them was Yurkovic, who was one of the most sociable players you would ever meet in your life. I had a donut with Tom, you know. But it was veteran guys. But the rest of the guys they were gone. So was that the turning point? No. Was it? The cutting of Andre Risen, who was uh, – and there's stories about Andre Risen, holy cow, the, before he got cut, that were uh, some of the most memorable stories that we have. When I say we, uh, the guys that were on that early Jaguars football team were night before a game in New England from on the back of the bus. And, and Andre was in a different state of mind than some of the other folks. And uh, so pretty interesting stories there. But was it when they cut Andre Risen that turned the franchise around in 1996? No. Well, there was also something that was going on because the owner, Wayne Weaver, was calling players into his office to find out what was going on with this team. And it wasn't like Tom Coughlin approved of Wayne Weaver calling players into his office. This was Wayne Weaver legitimately worried, did I have the right man to lead this organization going forward? He called me into his office. He called other key veterans into his office and wanted to know what was going on and what needed to change for us to win. And I remember my conversation with Wayne very well. And he asked me what I thought. And I said, look, I said, we just need to focus on one thing, and that's doing our own jobs. And I said, we need to stop worrying about Tom Coughlin, the terrible Tom, and he's not treating us right, and he's being too hard on us, and all this other stuff. And, and I thought that was important to say that to Wayne. 
And I also think it was important to share that message with the players because I was a captain. And I, sh- I shared that message with the players because a lot of the players wanted to tell Wayne that you know they wanted to see Tom gone. And I said, it's not about Tom. It's about us. It's about us. This is our football team. This isn't Tom Coughlin's football team. He's part of our team, but it's not his team. It's our team. And I think that that message was – was important to be said, and I probably wasn't the only one that was saying it. I think other guys were saying it as well. But I think you combine all of those things together, Andre Rising getting cut, did Tom maybe work on certain relationships better than he had in the past? Sure. Did the development of players like a Jimmy Smith and a Mark Brunel and a Kenny McCardell and stop turning the daggum ball over, start playing better defense, start playing – position football with special teams. I mean, all those things factored in, but you can't point to it and say it was just this one thing. It was just a compilation of things and also some damn good fortune as well. An overtime win in Baltimore, though, took the Jaguars in a different direction. 4-7 and seven became 8-7, and seven, and what seemed implausible in early December, if not entirely impossible in early November, was improbably within their grasp. I think the great thing about where we were at at that point at four and seven was there was no pressure there was no expectation all we were was a second year expansion franchise Uh, Carolina Panthers were doing pretty good so you always have a little bit of that comparison going on so you always want to be able to win that comparison but we didn't have a lot of expectation so I think it allowed a lot of guys just to continue to develop continue to work continue to get better and we weren't thinking playoffs in 96. We were thinking, let's win a game. Let's, let's try to win one game. And so when, you, when you're focused, and you hear so many coaches use that term, one game at a time, one game at a time, you know, well, we're just, you know, we're looking at the opponent this week and nobody else. That really, it means something. And there's legitimacy to why people say that, because that's what we were doing in 1996. We were just worried about that week and trying to win that week. But even, even to a a more a smaller level than that, we were just trying to get better in each individual practice and also trying to get better during the week to where we could be fresher on game day. And I think that was a big part of it because Coughlin had very demanding practices, which was expected. He wanted to weed out the week. But then he backed off and practiced a little bit and it also allowed us to be fresher for Sunday. And I think that was a big part of it. So all of those things combined allowed us to be worry-free, anxiety-free, one game at a time, and then we started to get better. And then all of a sudden you look up and you're like, wait a minute. you know." And we didn't really want to talk about it because we were sitting there talking about different combinations about how maybe we could get into the playoffs, but nobody wanted to talk about it. It was almost taboo. And then next thing you know, here we're getting ready to face Atlanta, and it's like, guys, uh, if we win this, we go to the playoffs. And – that put the pressure back on, and we didn't play very well against the Atlanta Falcons. I mean, it was probably, the, as well as we were playing leading up to that, it was probably one of the most poorly played games that we did as a football team in 1996 because we were so tense and we were anxiety-filled because of the pressure of needing to win to get to the playoffs. And obviously wanted to play very well in a big game. I, I remember I wanted to play well, and I probably didn't play my best game. But at the end of that game... Here the Falcons are driving, trying to do everything in, in my abilities to stop the Falcons. And then they're bringing out Morton Anderson for this field goal. And I'll never forget, I wasn't on field goal block. Wasn't on that team. For what reason, I don't know why. I'm six foot six, 
and got length. So does Clyde Simmons. Clyde Simmons out there, and Clyde Simmons has been known to be a great field goal block guy and, and had numerous of them in his career. Paul Fraze was actually the guy that came in for me on field goal block. So here we are, freezing Morton Anderson or whatever it was. I think we called a timeout. And I go to Larry Pasquale, our special teams coordinator, and I told Larry, I said, I'm not coming off the field. And I said, you better, you better tell Paul Fraze to not come in. He says, what? I said, I'm not leaving the field. I said, I am going to be on that field. And anyway, I had absolutely no impact on that play whatsoever. I get cut blocked by the offensive lineman. And so if you look at the picture of Morton's miss, there I am on the ground as the ball is sailing up. But he missed it, and, and it was a magical moment. But it was uh, – I shouldn't even have been on the field at that play. Maybe Paul Fraser would have blocked it if I did tell Pasquale that I'm staying on the field. Jeff, who rarely tasted victory in New York, was suddenly a connoisseur after five consecutive victories. Despite never having played in the postseason, he understood anything was possible for this team that was playing like they belonged, even if the rest of the league thought they were an outlier. It's hard to beat the 96 playoff momentum that we had because of the miracle of the win at home against the Atlanta Falcons propelled us to Buffalo. And I had a lot of confidence against the Buffalo Bills because you knew that the heyday of the Buffalo Bills, who I had faced so many different times when I was with the New York Jets, their heyday was gone. And they were trying to hang on with a couple key players, Jim Kelly and obviously Bruce Smith, who both of them are Hall of Famers and, and rightly so great players. But I just felt really good about our chance against them. I felt good about where our offense was, felt really good about our defense against what I've considered to be an offense that wasn't quite what it used to be in their heyday in Buffalo. So we had confidence, and boy, we had, I think the, the two guys that really stood out in my mind or stand out in my mind in that game, Natrone Means, who was an absolute beast against Buffalo, and Clyde Simmons with a huge play against Jim Kelly. And uh, boy, what a, what a moment, what a special moment. And Clyde making that play. And and that was just such a fun game because to go back to where we were at when we were 4-7, and seven, we had no pressure, we had no expectation. Well, we go to the playoffs, there's no pressure, there's no expectation. So here we are again playing anxiety-free football, having a good time, having probably no expectation or no realist, realistic expectation that we were going to be in the playoffs in 1996, maybe 1997, but certainly not 96. We beat Buffalo. Like, all right, cool. And then now we're going to Denver to face the team. I think that they had one win all season long at the number one seed. Nobody was going to stop John Elway and Bill Romanowski and Terrell Davis and his great well, – nobody was going to stop the Denver Broncos of that day. And all we did was show up. And uh, when we showed up, we woke up on game day morning and we read the newspaper and there's a good article in the newspaper to get some more fuel in the fire, so to speak, from Woody Page calling us the Jaguars and how does, how, does, how does some team named the Jaguars expect to beat the vaunted Denver Broncos and he starts making fun of certain players that are on our roster. And I went up to every player that was in that article and I said, hey, did you read this? Did you read this? Did you read this? Did you read this? You better read it. If you hadn't read it, here you go. I wanted to get guys fired up. And then we showed up out there and then, wow, Mark Brunell in that game, Jimmy Smith in that game. Defensively, I'd like to say that we played great. I, I think we played okay, but man, that was a day of just offensive football just being dominant and the magic of Mark Brunell 
the magic of, of Jimmy Smith. And it wasn't even so much like Natron means from the previous week, but boy, our offense was special in that. And when Mark Brunell could make things happen with his legs, I mean, we, we were as dangerous of an offensive football team as there was in the league the way we were playing that day with Mark Brunell at quarterback. The sun was stretching over the Rocky Mountains, casting splashes of fading light over Mile High Stadium as Lagerman walked towards the visitors' locker room after that win. The AFC Championship game was in their windshield, but the man who had never played in a playoff game and had now never lost a playoff game wanted to reflect through the rearview mirror before boarding the flight for home. One of the most unique things about that win in Denver was you, you rewind all the way back to the preseason. And here we are going to Denver to play in a preseason football game in 1996. And then all of a sudden, whispers start that we had just signed Clyde Simmons. Well, Corey Mayfield, unfortunately, the defensive tackle, gets sent home the morning of the preseason game against the Denver Broncos. Clyde Simmons is flown into Denver. He's told he's not going to play. They get him outfitted in a uniform, shoulder pads, cleats, nothing that he's ever worn before. And we go out there in the first half, and, and we didn't play very well in the preseason. This is preseason. Tom Coughlin comes back into that locker room and is irate. I mean, he is, he is chewing heads off at a ferocious rate. And he comes in and he – and everybody's like taking a knee in the middle of the locker room or sitting around on chairs or whatever. And here's this Gatorade table with cups filled with Gatorade and water. And Coughlin comes in and swings his arm through the cups. And they just literally fly up into the air and right into the face of Clyde Simmons and me. And then when Coughlin turns his attention to a different direction, Clyde looks at me, gets my attention, he goes, is it like this all the time? And I just shook my head, yes. <laughs> His eyes were so big. And then you fast forward to the playoffs. We just won in Denver. And so it's amazing how things had changed from the preseason of 96 to the postseason of 96 with the Jaguars football team that had no expectations. And then coming home was – Incredible, and I think it was incredible more so the win against Buffalo because what happened was totally unplanned. The the road from the airport to 95, because back then there was no shortcut that everybody takes now back to 295. So it was a long tunnel road, and there's people standing alongside the road, parked alongside the road, in the back of pickups, drinking beer, you know, hooting and hollering, and then the buses are crawling along, heading through this literally like a tunnel of people and fans heading back to the stadium. So to me, that was so much more special, but as special as the the flyover of the stadium coming back from Denver, just because it was unplanned and some of the unplanned things. And, and, and here I was thinking to myself, this is the fun and excitement I was expecting when I came here as a free agent. And then to beat Denver and then to do a flyover over the stadium and literally, I don't know how many feet we were above the stadium, but we weren't a lot because I could identify people 
individual people in the stadium. And it was not quite to the level of some of the great flowers that we've had in Jacksonville Jaguars history, but it was pretty cool. And we actually stopped the card game that we were playing in the back of the plane to look out into the stadium because it was pretty daggum cool now. I don't know if there's ever been a 727 or a 747, whatever it was that we were flying in back then, that's ever done a flyover of an NFL stadium at that level before. He was ready for more, much more. But after just one more season, his pro football career was complete. Arguably the best shape I've ever been in in my life, and I didn't know if this was going to be – it was the last year of, of my contract. And I had, I had no desire to go anywhere else, but I didn't know if anywhere else was going to be in a retirement. So I, I was kind of unsure. I was thinking it was going to be my last year. And I wanted, to, I wanted it to be that if, if it was my last year, I wanted it to be my best year. So I, I was in great shape, uh, probably as lean and as strong as I've ever been, injury-free coming into the season, which couldn't be said for many other years playing professional football. So I was very excited. And... Go to Chicago, looking forward to it. It's not a hot weather opening day place against the Chicago Bears and Edgar Bennett, the running back, you know, is a good back and I think he's a local guy. So I was looking forward to facing him. And I'll never forget the play. It was the fourth defensive play of the game. And it's a play away and I'm the right defensive end and I'm trailing down the line of scrimmage and I'm supposed to play backside for any cutbacks, reverse or anything like that, and also to pursue Edgar Bennett. And I'm so fired up, so anxious that I take a little bit too tight of an angle. And when I do, Edgar Bennett decides to plant his foot and then cut back and try to bounce outside of me. So when he does, I'm, I've got too much, too much momentum going. I plant my foot and I dive up and out and then throw my arm out to try to trip him up. And that high knee kick that he had, which kind of like Roger Craigish, he kicks my arm and my arm pops and... And there goes Edgar Bennett. I didn't make the tackle, and there he goes, and I'm on the ground holding my arm. And never forget, the doctor comes out, and he looks at me, and he says, what happened? And I had already been looking at my arm for a while. And I said, well, I tore my bicep tendon. It's rolled up in my arm. I said, I also sprained this ligament right here. And he goes, well, I've never seen the two of them together. I said, well, you're fixing to. And sure enough, did the MRI and had a, a distal bicep tendon tear, which is the bicep tendon in your, out of your elbow, and everything rolls up like a window shade and had a second, third-degree strain of that ligament down on my elbow and was going to require surgery. So, And was that going to be season-ending or not? Well, they didn't want to hold the roster spot for somebody that may or may not be able to play towards the end of the year. So I went to IR, and it was uh, one of the most frustrating seasons I've ever had because I just wanted to go out on such a high note. But that, for me, that was – it was a it was a – a tough career because in that was my 10th year and in 10 years I'd had a herniated disc on my neck, tore an ACL, had reconstructive surgery, right anterior capsule shift in my right shoulder. I had dislocated shoulder, I had separated shoulders, had multiple broken fingers and thumbs, had a microfracture in my left knee, had an umbilical hernia surgery and so many other injuries that didn't require surgeries or medical attention. And then, by the way, I found out after I retired that I had a complete tear of my PCL in my left knee and never knew it because I was on so much medication from a shoulder injury. So it was time after the bicep tendon 
was torn and, and all I could be was essentially a glorified cheerleader and was uh, certainly tried to be my best at that and was hoping that we would win at a level that's never been seen before with this franchise and we were unable to do that and that was probably one of the most disappointing things is that I couldn't be a part of making it the best year ever for this franchise. Jeff left football behind but as he walked out the door he knew the players were in place for a winning tradition. Yeah, I think I think the, my top five guys. I mean, number one for me is Baselli. From from the day that I ran him over and tore his knee in Stevens Point <laughs> and sent him home <laughs> on Wayne Weaver's private jet to get fixed back in Jacksonville. But I mean, he was just a a special talent. And to go against Tony when he was just this pup from USC, and he was so good, so good in practice. I mean, here I was, a seventh-year guy going against a rookie, and I remember going, how am I going to beat this rookie? Great player, great player, ultra-competitive, great leadership qualities. And the reason I put him probably at the top is because, no offense to Mark Brunel, but everybody has different leadership qualities. And a lot of people expect a quarterback to always be the main leader of an offense. In the early years of the Jaguars' history, Tony Baselli was the leader without question on offense. And not a slight of any kind to Mark Brunell. But that was just the qualities of Mark and Tony, and they were a good fit together because they each had a different quality of strength. And Tony, Tony's leadership was tremendous. Jimmy Smith. I've been a big believer and that guys that have great success on special teams will ultimately be great players on, on as positional players as well. And Jimmy Smith, I mean, blocked a punt early in the franchise's history. And then Jimmy Smith became arguably a Hall of Fame wide receiver in this league. And he had such a special relationship with Mark that the two of them could almost communicate without saying anything and without – any type of body language whatsoever. It was just something in the eye contact because they had something that was very unique, the ability to change the play and to throw the go route whenever they saw it fit. And there were many times that, boy, did they ever see it fit. Mark would throw a beautiful ball, and Jimmy just had this speed that if you put him on the clock, I don't think he was that fast, but you put him in pads and on grass – he was faster than everybody else. And when the ball was in the air, he had another gear that nobody else could achieve. A total special player. And it was so fun because I think a lot of the credit to Jimmy being a great player goes to another one of my great players is Keenan McCardell. Because without Keenan, I don't think that there is a Jimmy. I think with without Jimmy, there's always a Keenan. But I think Keenan gave Jimmy the confidence and the competitive fire to become the player that he became because Keenan was just such an ultimate competitor, but it wasn't just competition when it came to game day. He taught Jimmy how to practice because I don't know if Jimmy knew how to practice prior to Keenan getting here because Keenan practiced like he played, 100 miles an hour, and it didn't matter if he was nicked up. He showed everybody what toughness was as a wide receiver. So, I mean, those three guys, uh, and unfortunately it's mostly offensive guys because here I go to to Fred Taylor, who he had had such a special ability 
to to slow down and then accelerate faster than anybody. I used to call it the old Fred Sanford dead leg trick. He'd just stutter a little bit, and then that defender would gather himself for a second. And that's all it took. When the defender squared his feet up just for a second, that was it. Fred was gone because Fred had speed like no other. And you're talking 228 pounds of speed. And so I loved watching Fred Taylor. And Mark Brunel is, is a close right there at number five. But I, I've got to go to one guy that I, I've, got, I've got great respect for, and that's Tony Brackens, who I played with and Clyde played with. And when Tony Brackens came here, I'll never forget the very first practice that we were in pads. And as a veteran guy, you always try to you try to raise the younger players the right way. And so John Pease came to me and came to Clyde and said, I want you guys to work with this young man, Tony Brackens, obviously our second-round pick out of Texas. We want, we want him to learn to be a pro like you two are. So me and Clyde both agreed that we would work with him. So the first day of pads, and I grabbed Tony, and he's going to be my partner in a drill. And he lines up for me. He's the defender. I'm the offensive lineman, and so I'm supposed to come off and you know be a blocker of him. And he's going to give me a pop in my chest and stand me up and get his feet square, get good hand position. Well, I come off on this drill when John P says "hut," and I get hit in my chest, and I literally I can't breathe, and I'm going, oh. and I'm trying not to show that I'm that I'm in obvious discomfort and pain. <laughs> because I don't want to show this rookie that he's hurt me. So I kind of turned around and got my face away from him to catch my breath. And then I'll never forget the drill ends, thank goodness, because he was wearing me out and hurting me. And so as we're going to the next drill, I'm jogging next to Clyde, and I say, Clyde, tomorrow I want you to take Tony in that drill. (laughs) So the next day, Clyde takes Tony in that drill, and Clyde's eyes, just like they were on the Gatorade cups when Tom Coughlin knocked all the Gatorade and the water into him, his eyes were huge, and he goes, my God. I said, exactly, my God, the guy's strong. But he's such a great athlete. I'll never forget when we used to do conditioning drills. He would run with the running backs and outrun them. He could catch footballs when the quarterback was standing five feet away from him and I'm not talking about put his hands up to just bat it up in the air I'm talking the reaction and the cat quickness to catch a football seven feet away from a quarterback and not bat it but catch it and then the ability to make the big play uh, I just have such great respect for him because he is by far one of the most talented players I've ever played with he is such a good person and he's one of the smartest players that I ever played with. He would be in meetings, and then all of a sudden you'd be tapping him, trying to wake him up because he's taking a nap in meetings. But he had retention that if you told him once, that was all you needed to tell him because he was so smart. And not only do I have so much respect for him as a player, but Tony Brackens, when he came in here, was driving this beat-up Toyota car that wasn't worth – a thousand dollars probably and the day he left this franchise and he was one of the highest i think he was the highest paid player in the organization's history when he left here he was driving that same car and he saved all of his money and i 
I just have so much respect for him on a personal level, a professional level, and so many other levels because he's a good man. He was ready for more, much more. But after just one more season, his pro football career was complete. Well, first and foremost, I I feel incredibly fortunate, blessed to have been able to be what I've been here in Jacksonville. And and very few guys have had the opportunity that I've had. And and I'm thankful every day. I mean, I, I literally wake up and I say to myself, could you have written it up any better? And that uh, you, you always have passions in life. And for me, my passions have always been family, football, fishing, hunting, farming. And believe it or not, people say, farming? What, what do you mean by that? Well, I, when I was a kid, I grew up, all I ever wanted to be was a farmer. And so all of these passions that I that I have and had, they were all met right here in Jacksonville. And football, Jacksonville Jaguars, family, got an incredible family, blessed with two great kids, farming, I've got a tree farm in Georgia, fishing, hunting, can do all of that here in Jacksonville and to a degree that can't be seen in a lot of other places. So, I mean, Jacksonville was just a great fit. And 25 years, it's hard to believe that it's been 25 years, but then at the same token, sometimes I wake up in the morning and go, man, it feels like 30 years. <laughs> uh, the body's just kind of getting a little bit old, but uh, but it has been an incredible ride, and I'm not ready for the ride to end yet. I think one of the most exciting things for me has been recently when this franchise hosted a playoff game against the Buffalo Bills, and to see that sea of white in the stadium that hadn't been seen since what I call the honeymoon days of 95, 6, 7, and 8. I mean, that really took, I think it took a lot of fans back to those glory days and rekindled a lot of that fire, that burning fire inside of everybody to be a Jaguar fan. And for me, it was no different. I mean, it relit the the candle, so to speak. And I mean, I just, I love this franchise. I love everything about it. I love the history. I love the players that have gone through here that I get to see occasionally, whether it be in a, in a setting in which the Jaguars are the ones who set it up or whether it be just out on the street. I mean, Jacksonville has been such a great town to a lot of different former Jaguars, but I think particularly the, the earlier Jaguars because we've, we have a special feeling for Jacksonville because – I think the people of Jacksonville have a special feeling towards us too, you know, because that was that was the honeymoon period. And that to me that will never be replicated that that specialness of 95 and 6 and 7. But that special feeling can be different and still be special for this franchise going forward, but but I I do I feel so lucky, so fortunate to have been a part of this franchise from the very beginning. There's not a day that goes by without me going, I really am lucky. He left the locker room behind, but he stayed close to the game as a Jaguars broadcaster, first on television and most prominently on radio. It isn't the same as putting on a helmet, but it keeps him close to the franchise he loves. I think being in the booth, it, it doesn't fulfill everything that being on the field there's, there's nothing that can fulfill that. The competitive 
fires that you have. I mean, you're not competing in the booth, but you're challenged. You're challenged. You're challenged to have a good broadcast, challenged to execute your job at a high level, and I take that challenge very seriously every week. And But it's different. It's a lot different. And when, you, when you're a part of a team, which we have a broadcast team, and then – but a football team is 53 guys that you're bleeding, you're sweating together, and you're doing it all year long. It's just a little bit different. But I can tell you the Monday mornings I wake up after broadcast and I feel a hell of a lot better than I do after the games that were played. So there's, there's positives to all of that. And that broadcasting can provide a lot of positive things. And, and yeah, it keeps you a part of the game. And I think the one thing that's a little bit different, I think, as a broadcaster now, you develop a lot of great relationships like you had when you were a player. But I think the relationships now as a broadcaster, you don't have you, – you know all the players. You talk to the players. They know who you are. But is, the, is that relationship like it was when you were a player? No, not even close. But you have great relationships with the staff of the organization, whether it be coaching staff, the personnel staff. And so, in a way, you're rooting for the team, but you're rooting for success because of those relationships that you have with people that you've built over the years. And because we all know the reality of football. And that if success is not forthcoming, then those relationships will not continue on as they are right now because you have to win in this business to be able to continue to see those persons so uh, but broadcasting love it uh, can't beat it but at the same token here's the other thing the paychecks aren't nearly as good <laughs>